Hello, and welcome to the A to Z of the Future podcast. My name is Alexander Thomas. This is the second episode in our series on transhumanism. Today, we are going to begin our exploration into the so-called three supers of transhumanism, super longevity, super intelligence, and super happiness. In this episode, we're going to focus on super longevity, That is, the aim of extending human lifespans vastly beyond their current limits, and potentially indefinitely. As with the last episode, we'll begin with David Pierce, co-founder of the World Transhumanist Association and fellow of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Aging is a frightful genetic disorder, and transhumanists believe essentially in making sure that everyone at least in principle, everyone should have the opportunity to lead a happy life indefinitely. Here's David Wood now, who we also met in episode one, author, proud transhumanist and chair of London Futurists. So my own preferred term is the abolition of ageing. That's the title of a book I wrote in 2016, in which I set out the argument that there's a 50% chance that by 2040, rejuvenation therapies will be widely in use and affordable and work well. I still stick by that forecast because of what I've seen improving in the field of uh, rejuvenation biotechnology. So there is indeed a chance that uh, many people who are alive today may not need to age and they could live much longer as a result. I'm not quite sure I like offering people immortality. That's more of a religious concept. But what I can say is immortality. We will not get more likely to die as we live longer. Currently, the longer people live, the probability of them dying increases. It doubles every eight years or so as we get older because our bodies get weaker. Well, that can become a thing of the past because of mechanisms to repair us in a regular basis. As we understand the causes of aging throughout the body, we're going to need a lot of therapies, but over time I believe they're going to become more and more effective. This will be driven by biological interventions, but these biological interventions might be informed by the results of big data analysis. More and more of the interesting research in drugs and in biological metabolic pathways are being informed now by the application of AI. And as AI improves, as I believe it will, I think the chances will increase of faster progress in this field. So, according to transhumanists, ageing may become a thing of the past. Those converging NBIC technologies we spoke about in the last episode, nanotech, biotech, infotech and cognotech, are on an exponential trajectory that could make the unthinkable possible, radically changing the human condition by ending mortality. Next, I'd like to introduce Sergey Young. Sergey is the author of The Science and Technology of Growing Young. One of Sergey's main goals is to live to 200 years old and to find an affordable way for everyone else to do the same. Sergey is going to talk us through some of the current technologies that make super longevity a real world and potentially fairly short term prospect. The first suite of technology Sergey mentions here relates to our increasing ability to manipulate our genes. 
gene editing in the form of CRISPR. This is the basic and the first gene editing technology, almost like a genetic scissors. 30 years ago, it was available to a handful of people on Earth who had extremely rare and dangerous genetic diseases. They had nothing to lose. And this is where CRISPR started. Again, 30 years ago, it took $3 billion and 13 years to sequence genome of the human. Today, you can sequence this in, in just in a few hours, and it costs like $200. Well, that's just amazing progress. Right now, we're all ex participating in a global experiment in gene therapy because mRNA vaccines like Moderna, and many other COVID vaccines are the outcome of gene therapy. We just don't advertise that and don't realize that. Moderna vaccine has been developed in the course of two days. This is amazing because in the history of humanity, sometimes it took us decades to develop vaccine for some of the dangerous diseases or viruses. Well, it's not the case anymore. This is the beauty of that. But like in gene editing field, we've been working on prevention of early death so far, fighting cancer, viruses, rare genetic diseases. In the future, we will be able to help people not to suffer from genetic diseases or in the long-term future, we'll have a technological and scientific opportunity to genetically modify people to influence their longevity genes. We already know all 3,000 genes in our body, in our DNA, which are responsible for longer and healthier living. Making sure we have equal access to that this is the biggest priority. Sergei also sees organ replacement technologies as another front through which we can fight aging. In his book, he relates how some people are already regrowing organs, such as ears, onto their bodies so they can be grafted back into place. But this is just the beginning. Oh, this is fascinating. Like, just think about the old car metaphor, right? Even today, we can extend the resource and productive time of the old car by replacing different organs inside the car. We call them parts or even engine. And this is going to happen with our bodies. So number of technologies which are currently in development. One, you can just 3D bioprint organs. And there are a number of companies who are working on that. More than 90% of these organs today end up in, in the labs. They're actually used for scientific experiments. And we're just squeezing the, the whole timeline for scientific experiment these days. You can use different animals to produce donor organs like pigs. They're more genetically close to us. Or we just invested in a company two years ago. It's called Lygenesis. And what Lygenesis does they develop technology where you can take like a donor liver and help not one, but 50 to 75 patients. You just split this donor liver in 50 to 75 pieces and you put this nu like a nucleus of the, of the liver inside human body in the lymph node. And in the course of three to six months, this body regrows and you liver inside your body. And it's been amazing. If you think it's science fiction, then they've done it with mice, dogs, primates, with pigs and they start human trials. They just got FDA approval. So this is amazing. It's an opportunity for all of us to extend our productive and like a healthy part of our life, even if some of our organs are not performing at the level they should. Another anti-aging methodology is senolytics. That is drugs that combat the process of aging. I do believe in five, 10 years from now, we're going to have completely new, different category of drugs. Drugs which would fight aging 
in its core. And this will come through change in regulation, because right now aging is not disease, so you can't really register a drug. Two options. One, it can be one of the current drugs. We already have two candidates to become a longevity pill. One is the old diabetes drug called metformin. The other one is rapamycin, and we still need to test it. So don't run to your doctor and don't ask him or her for prescription. Or it can be a drug developed with the help of artificial intelligence because AI will empower us to make drug development and drug discovery cycle much more efficient and less, less expensive. So in the near-term future, we will be able to inhibit aging through genetic techniques, organ replacements, and anti-aging drugs. Together, they may give some of us enough additional time on Earth for more radically effective technological methodologies to arrive. Here now is existential risk researcher, philosopher, and historian Emil Torres, who, along with Sergey, will explain the concept of longevity escape velocity, an idea put forward by biomedical gerontologist Aubrey de Grey. There's quite a bit of money that's gone into the field of longevity research, and the aim is to identify various techniques that could prevent aging. We could cross this threshold that's been called longevity escape velocity. And the idea here is that you perhaps you just need to live long enough to live forever. So if you live long enough to benefit from certain anti-aging technologies that extend your life maybe 20 years, during those 20 years, because of the exponential development of some of these technologies, you might expect after two decades to be able to benefit from a new technology after some other breakthrough that would extend your life 50 years. Within those five decades, then there's going to continue to be exponential development. At that point, perhaps you you may have available to you technologies that enable you to extend your life forever. The speed of innovation, the pace of technological discoveries and development at one point of time in the future will be faster than speed of aging. So like for every year of your life, when you're going to be aging for 12 months, it's going to be enough innovations and discoveries to extend your life by more than 12 months. Every model, like every framework, it's huge simplification of reality. But I do think the value of longevity escape velocity metaphor and framework is just to show that we live in, in a very unique moment of time where speed of technological advancements is much, much higher and then can compete with the speed of aging inside our bodies. Eventually, AI and other information technologies may take us beyond genetic or pharmaceutical cures for aging, but these really radical leaps forward in longevity may only be achievable if we start to fuse with these digital technologies. Sergey now looks to this longer-term horizon of anti-aging possibilities. I do believe that in 10, 20 years from now, it's going to be a completely different version of medicine and we'll have an opportunity to extend our lifespan by at least 10, 20, even more years, up to 120. But beyond that, I do think, and this is what I define as the far horizon of longevity innovation in the book, without redefining the human, without merging the biological side of us and technological or engineering side of us, it's going to be very difficult for us to live significantly longer in our current biological setup. What are the 
technologies that we're we going to use in 25 to 50 years from now, or we're going to use with pretty high probability. One is human brain, AI, or computer integration. Like some of the things which is done by Elon Musk today in Neuralink and many, many companies all around the earth. So we're all going to be integrated with computer power. And even today, we are integrated with computer. I'm talking about smartphones. We're just using very inefficient interface for this integration. I'm using my fingers to type, you know, ears to do an audio call or my eyes to look at the screen. So this is going to be a much more seamless integration. You know the concept of Internet of Things, then, you know, all of the things around us are interconnected. So it's going to be the same, same concept, but with humans. So I call it Internet of Bodies. Even today, I'm like full of sensors. So I'm using Aura Ring to monitor my sleep. I use Whoop and Apple Watch to monitor my physical activity and some of my health indicators, continuous glucose monitor. And there's so many things, you know, we can use today. And we're going to be full of sensors. We're all going to be interconnected. We're going to be part of one decentralized AI run the system on Earth, which will be responsible for early detection of problems inside our body. It's going to be none about redefining humans is in 25, 50 years from now. My mission is to bring this digital version of longevity and, and healthcare to the world. And if, and if it's not for our generation, I would be really delighted and happy if this can be of use for next generation of people on the planet. So I'm not that focused on when I'm going to be living 80, 100 or 200 years. And I'm using these figures just to broaden up horizons for people and for them to understand that there's so many things that they can do now to extend their lifespan, at least by 10, 20 healthy and, and happy years. Author and transhumanist Callum Chase now considers some of the ethical implications of these changes. Now, some people think that's not natural. Um, they think it should be refused. Now, I, I think it's fair enough for people to say they don't want it for themselves. I do not think it's fair enough for people to say that nobody else can extend their lives and extend their health span. But in the coming decades, this will get increasingly controversial. And one of the reasons is the obvious problem that in the first wave of the introduction of any technology, it tends to be rich people who get access. Now, that's arguably not great when it comes to smartphones. It's arguably terrible when it comes to immortality, or at least you know, the, the option of not dying. So it may be that some of these advances need to be regulated. A lot of transhumanists adopt what's called the proactionary principle, which is that there should be no breaks on the improvements we're allowed. I don't go all the way with that. I think that it, there may well be space for regulation. I'm not sure that the abolition of death should be something that's available to some people just because they're very rich and not to everybody else. With something as vital <laughs> as life or death, as life or death, there may need to be some sort of regulation and there will be a lot of controversy about that. I do believe that technology will give us an opportunity to democratize healthcare. There are more ethical questions and barriers behind that. When we reach this point of time, science and technology are not going to be the problem. The biggest problem is going to be human ethics and regulation. Your decision to extend or not to extend your life today is called suicide in many cultures, and it's actually blamed, or it's going to be called playing a god. So there's so many things that we need to sort out on the ethical and, and regulatory front before we will reach this point. Sergey is right, of course. The ethics of these developments are a mammoth challenge. 
it is not only a question of universal accessibility, but also of sustainability. When we think back to our last series on the Anthropocene, we're reminded of the devastating toll human lifeways are already having on the rest of nature. There's now over 8 billion of us. What would happen to human population levels if we stopped dying? We'll save such questions for another day. For now, let's just ask how realistic are these ideas and could they be coming as quickly as Sergei suggests? Emil Torres thinks these objectives may indeed be somewhat feasible and identifies the key factor that makes this so money. The likelihood that technology would enable us to radically extend our lifespans. As mentioned before, I mean, there's a huge amount of money going into longevity research. So it doesn't seem impossible to me that at some point in the near future, we may in fact have, you know, these various anti-aging therapies available to us that would enable individuals to, you know, at least cross the threshold of longevity escape velocity. One of the people working hard to ensure that money is pouring into longevity research is our guest, Sergey Young. Sergey has made it his mission to extend the healthy lifespans of one billion people. Here, he talks us through some of his investment projects. I've been investing for quite a while. So thing number one for me was really to set up a, an investment fund. I thought it's, it should be a relatively small fund. At this time, I thought it's going to be somewhere around $50 million. And so I raised this $50 million in the first five minutes. I'm insecure overachiever, Alex. And so I'm, I moved the target immediately to $100 million. So LVF1 as Longevity Vision Fund is a $100 million fund. We're going to invest in 20 to 25 companies over the course of the life of the fund. So I can support the people, scientists and, and entrepreneurs who are trying to bring affordable and accessible version of longevity to the world. This is my, my main focus. I'm not interested in building something just for the rich guys. It should be affordable and accessible. In fact, my dream is for healthcare to become uh, like a universal basic good or service. Second, I'm a good friend with Peter Diamantes and and know a lot of people around XPRIZE Foundation. XPRIZE Foundation is a, is a pro bono organization based in Culver City in California. And what we're doing is we're running different technological competition for hundreds of teams all around the world for them to compete for the big prize. And in course of this competition, they need to create a solution for world biggest problems. And if they win in this competition, then they can, can get a prize. So the largest X prize that we launched was 2021 with Elon Musk. It's called Carbon Removal X Prize, and $100 million is going to be given to a combination of teams. We'll develop a solution to take CO2 from the atmosphere and convert it to minimal viable products. I'm, I'm doing this same kind of approach with HVersal. So we, we're designing a competition for hundreds of teams from around the world, usually it's 50 plus countries, where a winning team would need to present intervention, technology, or piece of science, which will help to reverse aging inside the human body. Longevity Vision Fund invests in the near horizon of longevity technologies, which are gene editing and gene therapy, organ regeneration, longevity and appeal. I do think that the basic healthcare package should be offered for free to all the citizens on Earth. And we have an opportunity to develop this. 
Callum Chase is concerned that, despite the tantalising promise of indefinite lifespans, a lot of people seem to be repulsed by the idea. After that, Sergey offers some thoughts as to why this may be. I also would like us to have stories about ourselves which involve the possibility of human life being much, much, much better than it is today. For instance, not having to die. I know a lot of people who, when I say, you know, how about living forever? Or how about not having to die when you're 80 or 100? They go, why would I want to do that? And I can't understand that way of thought. But it appears from the conversations I've had to be the majority point of view. But particularly among English people, not so much among Americans. Americans tend to go, yeah, yeah, how do I get that? But English people tend to go, living forever sounds a terrible idea. And I'd I'd like us to have stories of a positive future, what it would be like to be 3,000 years old. I do have a lot of sympathy with the position of 60 to 80% of people who don't see the value of life extension or they don't believe it's possible. I've just done a TEDx talk called Morality of Immortality on ethical aspects of living longer. And the key message there is we have created technologies to extend our life, but we haven't created a life that we want to extend. And this is the biggest problem. This world is is full of conflicts, full of ethical dilemmas that we need to solve. Even if you if you take a look at inequality gap, like two regions, we share the same border in the US, in the same city, just with the different zip codes, one for poor and one for each, can have 15 years of the average lifespan. This is awful. Like, on this planet, why would people who are neighbors have different opportunity? One live longer, healthy, and happy life, and one is not. So that's one thing. The second reflection on, on that topic is more about the model of aging that we have today in our minds is, is really outdated because we obviously look into our grandmas and grandpas who are suffering from a lot of diseases, including neurodegenerative ones. The last five or 10 years of their life, they are in a very fragile state, requiring a lot of support. And people just don't want to have the same experience to to be less of an asset, but more like a liability for their family. And well, that's why uh, if you look at this model, obviously, you don't want to live longer. Uh, You just want to die one day. I, I do think the technology and, and the science and, and more digital version of medicine will, will give us an opportunity to change that. But so far, this is the model that we have in our minds. And obviously, no one wants to spend the last five or 10 years of their life in such a difficult state. So it's important to remember the proposals are not just about living hundreds of years. It's not just about staying alive, but staying young, fit, active and healthy. Even then, living extreme lengths of time may start to be a burden. Despite this, Sergei is optimistic we can find new forms of meaning, and indeed, that longer lives may make us better people. I'm not a big fan of immortality. I do think that human cycle need to have something in the end. So I would hate the idea of endless living on Earth, unless we go outside the boundaries of this planet. But this this is a separate discussion. So... I don't think immortality will ever exist. It's going to be serious of your life extension decisions that you're going to take every three, five or 10 years. 
And then it's really up to you if you want to extend your life or not. There's, there's more freedom of choice when to die and whether you want to extend your life or not. And what is the meaning behind that? Because your why is much more important than how. I'm pretty sure we'll sort out how to extend our lives pretty soon. But like the most difficult question is to find the meaning of life and behind the life extension. I do think that the life extension or radical life extension give us the opportunity to be more responsible. Because right now, if I'm like 50 and I'm going to live 75 years, I can always say, well, forget about this plastic. The next generation will need to find out the answer to that. But like if we all going to live 100, 120, 150 years, we will face the consequences of our own actions. I, I do think it's it will bring us much higher sense of responsibility and will give us an opportunity to create like a better versions of, of ourselves. But again, I'm like super optimistic, super idealistic guy. Uh, if the world will consist of Sergey Youngs only, we're going to be in trouble. So I always need someone to balance me on the skeptical side. But what happens if the fight against ageing takes a bit longer than transhumanists would desire? Whilst many such thinkers claim that longevity escape velocity will be reached by 2035 or before, there is a fair chance that ageing may prove a less tractable problem than they imagine. Fear not, transhumanists have a backup plan. Here's noted transhumanist Natasha Vita Moore, who has been described as a role model for super longevity, and David Pierce to explain. If a discovery or a breakthrough uh, to slow down or reverse aging does not come about within one's lifetime, then the only way to live longer, potentially, is to be cryopreserved. Of course, we don't yet actually have the tools to eradicate aging. So as well as the approach of essentially defeating the biology of aging, transhumanists have a fallback strategy, which is cryonics. This is the idea that rather than crumbling away and perishing, that humans can be suspended. And when the technology is available, it will be possible to recreate whoever has been suspended. Whatever actually killed them can be uh, cured, but also other upgrades will, will be possible too. One problem, of course, is that by the time you need to be cryonically preserved, your body may well have already reached a state of decrepitude. Wouldn't it be great if instead we could suspend ourselves at the peak of our powers? Well, some people have such faith in the future that they would be willing to embrace cryonics before Father Time has started to work them over. Here's David Pierce again. One branch of cryonics is so-called cryothanasia. Cryothanasia is the idea that rather than waiting to the age of 95, when you're probably going to be pretty gaga, at least uh, not the person you used to be, it would be possible to suspend you in absolute optimal conditions, uh, which will make it much, much easier for you to be reanimated uh, at a future date with all the relevant information intact. Sadly, people who are cryonically suspended, let's say, eight, 10, 12 hours after they were nominally dead, it would take an extraordinarily advanced civilization to, to reanimate someone in that, in, in that condition. So that's one of the three supers then, super longevity, indefinite lifespans with a fallback option 
particularly relevant for older people of cryonics. And I personally think cryonics should be opt-out and cryothanasia obviously opt-in. And now we turn to Anders Sandberg from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University for his take on cryonics and his reflection on why he himself has signed up to be cryopreserved should he temporarily take leave of this mortal coil. So the idea in cryonics is that there are many conditions that are currently impossible to treat medically, yet in the future we might be able to treat them. We know historically that this has been the case. So what if there was a way of getting a very sick patient to the future where there might be a treatment? So the idea with cryonics is that you use low temperatures to stop life processes, and that way you preserve the patient for the future. Usually cryonics wins when you say freezing patients, because freezing means that water turns into crystals and that tends to damage tissue. What you really aim for is a process that very gently lowers the temperature, First, so life processes slow down and stop so you don't get any more damage. And then get the water to turn into a glassy and a solid. And then you can store people indefinitely at liquid nitrogen temperatures. So this is an experiment in a sense, because we don't have a way of reviving them right now. There are small lab experiments, of course, taking pieces of tissue and small animals and freezing them and towing them out, but nothing that would work on a human. But that doesn't matter too much because you could wait. We could wait quite a long while at these temperatures because there is basically no chemistry happening whatsoever. So I've known about cryonics ever since I was a kid, since I read a lot of science fiction. The idea about suspended animation has been around in science fiction at least since the early part of the 20th century, probably long before that. Benjamin Franklin actually equipped in a letter that he had heard that flies that being submerged in Madeira wine could be revived. So maybe when he was old and dying, they should put him in a cask of Madeira wine and send him to the future to be revived to see the future state of America. If he had, we should probably not wake him up right now, but we should wait until things get better. But uh, that idea has been around for a long time. And there are organizations that have been doing it. Alcor is probably the most long-running. So now it's almost 50 years old. That is good because you want a stable organization. You don't want a fly-by-night organization that's here today, gone tomorrow. You want something that's going to be around for decades, maybe centuries. It needs to be very stable. It needs to be run by people you trust and that you trust they are going to hand it over to other people who are trustworthy. So... For a long time, I was thinking, cryonics makes sense, but I was a poor student, so I can't afford doing that. And then I became a postdoctor, a fellow here in Oxford, and I was making a bit more money, maybe not a fortune, but at least enough money that I could think about it. And for a long while, I was procrastinating. Cryocrastination, as the joke term goes, is a very common thing. Many people put it off because they're afraid of death. And you need to actually confront your own death in order to sign up for cryonics, because legally speaking, you can't be frozen until you're legally dead. And you need to fill out a lot of forms that are lawyer proof about this. So there is a fair bit of hassle. So people put it off and quite often tragically perish before that. But eventually me and a colleague decided, actually, let's have a race. Let's try to see who can sign up first. And that did it. So I've been signed up ever since. So I'm wearing a little tag around my neck with medical information, telling hospital people that if I'm dead, call this number and follow the instructions. Many people 
who have a cryonics contract wear this under the shirt, of course, only for the people at the hospital to see. But I like wearing it on the outside because it's a brilliant conversation starter. No matter whether cryonics works or not, it brings up interesting conversation about how much do we trust the future? How, how much do we think about the value of our own lives versus other lives? After all, the money I'm spending on this, I'm having a life insurance that would pay out to pay for the suspension. I could be sending that to you know, people in Africa. I could save lives that way. There is this interesting balance between my life and other people's lives. There are questions about personal identity. If I get frozen and then told up, the person that emerged after being treated with advanced biotechnology and nanotechnology to repair all the damage that is going to have happened might be somewhat different from me. Am I okay with that? And there are many other interesting issues like our relationship across time. How much do we think that future generations can be trusted with our lives? And conversely, what should we do to make future generations really want us back? Anders raises some profound questions. Not only is there the possibility that the future we wake up in may look extremely alien and perhaps even hostile, but also, could we even be sure we'd wake up the same person, memory intact, identity stable? Natasha Vita Moore provided her own contribution to this question by investigating that very issue, albeit, for now at least, only with worms. It is true that I did accomplish a scientific discovery in long-term memory, and it is important because my work proves that memory can and does persist through cryobiological process of cryotics. And this is really important because we know that you can put a simple animal in cryonics or a vitrification, such as an embryo, a sperm, an egg, or a C. elegans, for example, and that they will be returned back to the material world or back to life in, in good order. But what about our minds? What about our memories? What about our brains, which is the, uh, one of the most crucial aspects of being human? I wanted to test that, and I did, and it was successful. So I worked with the C. elegans nematode worm because it is the most recognized animal to be worked with in scientific discoveries. It has been a participant in more than two Nobel Prizes. So I thought, let's start with a, with a real winner. And then I also learned that this particular simple animal had been cryopreserved in the past and brought back to life. And I thought, good. Now, what can I do? Okay, let's test its brain. Okay, it doesn't have a brain. It has 302 neurons throughout its body. And it's transparent, so you can see them. These Animals can be trained to perform a task through sensorial um, influences, for example, sound, taste, smell. So what I did was I used the Pavlovian technique of putting a particular smell, an um, odorant, with their food when they were babies. And so they learned to go to the food with that had a certain smell. Then when they were adults, I tested them to see if they would go to the food that had the smell or the food that did not have the smell. They 100% went to the food with the smell. Then I put them in um, cryopreservation, or I vitrified them. At adult stage, I brought them back to life in a warming bath, and then I tested them to see if they would go to the food that had the smell, the odorant. And 100% went to the food with the smell. So that proved that they remembered. They had imprinted the smell of the odorant chemical that I used, benzaldehyde, with their food. So I worked with not just one worm, but hundreds upon hundreds of worms. It, it took many, many months and long hours in the lab with 
uh, my technician, who was brilliant, it did prove that long-term memory does persist through cryopreservation. Dear listener, I wouldn't want you to just miss out on longevity escape velocity by indulging too heavily in this fleeting life. So before I leave you, I want to give Sergey Young the chance to remind you of what you can be doing right now to stick around long enough for longevity escape velocity to kick in. After all, we need all the listeners we can get. It's all going to be exciting in 10 to 20 years from now, but the most important things and the things that you're going to be doing tonight or tomorrow morning. There's so many things that you need to change in your daily routine to stay on longevity bridge, to be healthy and happy. Because if you will do that, then your body and mind going to be in a great shape in 10, 20 years from now. There's so many things you can do. I call them 10 longevity choices. And it's never going to be one silver bullet. It's going to be always combination of things. For the shorter version, five things that you need to do. One, your annual checkup. In fact, the day of your annual medical checkup is the most important day of your life every year. Early detection of cancer, heart disease, diabetes is your way to live 10, 20 healthier and happier years. Second is don't do stupid things. Avoid tobacco smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, driving motorcycles because this is 17 times more dangerous than driving the car, and just making you know, safer choices is extremely important as well. Using seat belts in 100% of times extends your life by two years. Just imagine that. Third is the diet. There's a lot of disagreement in the academic field what extends our life, but there's, there's one agreement that decreasing the number of calories that you take every day by 15 to 25% actually add two, three, five healthy years to your life. So eat less and eat more vegetables because they vary in intense in terms of calories. Experiment with different fasting routines. Take out all the sugar from your diet. You know, like 70 or 80% of products in, in US supermarkets have sugar added in that. Like we don't need the sugar, you know, water is great and whatever is produced by mother nature is great. You don't need the sugar drinks and you know, all of this processed food. Fourth is a physical activity. Use your wearable and wearables will become our personalized healthcare device. This is very important. And measure 10,000 steps a day. This is two thirds of your physical activity agenda for the day. This is great. And number five is importance of mental health. I, I call it peace of mind. And it is about the quantity and quality of your sleep. Eight hours in the bed, which is seven hours of sleep is my rule. Mindfulness and meditation is very important. You don't need to be religious to do that. This will help you to decrease the cortisol level inside your body, where cortisol is a stress hormone. And be a kind person. Be grateful. Share the best of you with the world. This will help you not only to be healthy, but happy as well. And that's it for today. I hope you feel inspired and encouraged to eat your greens, exercise regularly, and go easy on the fags and booze. I'd like to thank my guests today, David Pierce, David Wood, Sergey Young, Emil Torres, Callum Chase, Natasha Vitamore, and Anders Sandberg. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sangita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions in Psychedelic Abstraction. Much gratitude also goes to the brilliant Rob Sell and Paddy Jervis from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast, Matt Tams for his exquisite A to Z artwork, and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. 
We'll be back soon when we attack the next super, which raises even more mind-bending possibilities than living for thousands of years. And that is super intelligence. See you next time.